It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, 2020 has been a year full of difficult situations, and an important question for us to ask ourselves as Christians is, how should we respond when we face these difficult situations? And here in John chapter 20, we see five main responses that Jesus' followers have to the difficult situations that they faced. And as we look at these five responses, it teaches us ways that we should and ways that we shouldn't respond when you and I face difficult situations as well. Now, last week we looked at the first two responses from Jesus' followers, uh, and we've learned uh, two important ways that we shouldn't shouldn't respond when we face a difficult situation. Uh, First, don't make assumptions and jump to conclusions. Instead, investigate the situation get all the facts and listen to those involved. And second, study God's word and respond to your situation in light of what God's word tells us. Now this morning we're going to look at three more responses that we see from Jesus' followers to the difficult circumstances and situations that they face. And as we look at these three responses, we're going to see four more ways in which you and I should or shouldn't respond when we face difficult situations as well. And we're going to start by looking at someone we looked at last week, Mary Magdalene, but now we're going to see her second response. Last week we saw her first response to the difficult situation that she faced. And let's remind ourselves of of that first response because it's key, it influences and impacts this second response that she has to the difficult situation she is facing. And so Mary comes to the tomb of Jesus, the stone is rolled away, and she jumps to a wrong conclusion. She runs from there. She doesn't go into the tomb. She doesn't investigate what's going on. She just assumes Jesus's body must have been stolen. And she runs to Peter and John, and she tells Peter and John this false information. Somebody stole Jesus's body. And so we saw this response from Mary of jumping to wrong conclusions because she wasn't willing to investigate what was going on. And remember, the other women, they came in and uh, they got to see and hear from the angels and um, they recognized that Jesus's body was risen from the dead. So now we're going to be told here by John that Mary comes back to the tomb. And she's going to do something that she didn't do the first time. She's actually going to go all the way into the tomb. She's going to look in there, and she's going to see what she missed the first time, which are two angels that are there in the tomb. But her experience is going to be very different from the women that she was with and ran from. 
Because, you know, when they saw the two angels, they recognized and heard the wonderful news, Jesus is risen. But because of her wrong conclusion that someone has stolen the body of Jesus, it is going to influence and impact now this experience she has as she goes into the tomb and sees these angels. And so let's see what we can learn from this second response of Mary, starting in verse 11 of chapter 20 of John. It says this, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Well, now notice as Mary comes to the tomb for the second time, John tells us something about what happened. The last time she came, she was outside of the tomb. She jumped to the wrong conclusion that Jesus' body had been stolen, and she ran away from the tomb to speak to Peter and John and tell them that news that wasn't true. And now she's come back to the tomb, but she hasn't yet gone into it, and we're told that she's outside weeping. Jesus is risen from the dead, and she's outside weeping. Well, why is she weeping? She's weeping because she has jumped to the wrong conclusion. She never investigated. She doesn't know the truth that Jesus has risen. She thinks somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. And so Mary's uh, wrong conclusion has gotten her into this horrible emotional state where she is worried that someone has stolen Jesus' body, and it's just caused her to weep. And a wrong conclusion and uh, emotional state of worry is be now going to blind her. Blind her to the truth. Blind her to things that would reveal the truth to her that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. Notice what Mary sees. She's outside weeping. She finally takes the step to look into the tomb and note what she sees. And notice how she's blinded to it because of all of the preconceived assumptions and wrong conclusions that she has come to. Verse 12, And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary is so blinded by her wrong conclusion that Jesus' body has been stolen that notice as she sees two angels in that tomb, she's not even phased by it. She's not even impacted or moved by it. Now, I'm sure if you and I were to see two angels and they were to ask you a question, yeah, that would probably get your attention. You know, that would be something that would just blow your mind. Now, remember, when the other women went in, they saw angels and they had a typical response. Luke's gospel tells us they were afraid and they bowed themselves to the ground. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a common thing. You see some angels and you're a bit freaked out. You never experienced that before. You don't know what's going on. And that's how these women respond. But Mary, she just speaks to these angels like they're just two people sitting in the tomb. And perhaps that's the reality of it for her. Maybe she didn't even really recognize who it was she was having a conversation with because we were just told she was weeping. You know, her eyes are filled with tears. She's in this emotional state. The only thing she's focused on is her wrong conclusion. Somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, and I'm so worked up and upset over it that I'm not even realizing that I'm speaking to angels right now in this tomb, angels who told the other women what actually happened, angels who could reveal to me that Jesus is risen, his body has not been stolen. And they ask her, you know, why are you weeping? And instead of like, what in the world? Why are there angels in this tomb? You know, why are you talking to me? What's going on? She just gives them the answer, which totally shows where her focus is in all of what's going on. She says, because they took away my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. That's her focus. And their focus is completely wrong. This wrong conclusion is still haunting her and hurting her as she moves forward. Somebody stole Jesus, and I just want to know where he is. This is a sad state that Mary's in. Her wrong conclusion has led to this emotional state of worry and weeping. It's blinded her to the fact that she's speaking to two angels. But you know what? It gets even worse than that. You think, wow. You know, it's blinded her so much she doesn't even recognize she's speaking to two angels, but it gets worse because notice what we're told in verse 14 and 15. Now, when she had said this, she turned around. So she's looking into the tomb and she's speaking with these angels. And now she turns around and notice what she sees. She sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to them, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Notice that Mary has got herself in such an emotional state of worry and weeping because of the wrong conclusion that she came to that when Jesus is standing right before her, she doesn't even recognize him. Mary is worrying about something she shouldn't have been worrying about, and that worrying is blinding her from the one thing that will bring her comfort, the one thing that will solve her problems, the one thing that she desperately needs is Jesus. He's right in front of her. And she can't even see it because she's blinded by her worry. She's blinded by this false conclusion that she's come to. And I think this is a response that's an important warning for us. Because so often when we jump to wrong conclusions, it causes us to get into that emotional state of worry because typically the wrong conclusions we come to are negative things and problematic things. And, and we start to worry about those things when they're not even real and we become blinded from seeing what we need the most, which is Jesus. You know, I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of difficult situations where I just got so focused on the problem. I got so focused on the difficulty that I was in that it's kind of like it was tunnel vision. That's all I could see. I could just see the problem, the issue. That's where all my focus was. And it kept me from seeing what I needed to see the most, which was Jesus in the midst of it how Jesus was there with me, how Jesus could get me through it. You know, I kind of was blind to Jesus because all I was looking at was the problem and the worry that was with it. And the result was just like Mary. I lost sight of Jesus and perhaps 
you lose sight of Jesus as well, the one who brings comfort, the one who helps us through the difficult situations that we face. You see, worrying distracts us from Jesus, distracts us from what we need the most in the midst of difficult circumstances. We desperately need to see Jesus and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And so often worry is a thing that draws our focus away from him. So because of Mary's wrong conclusion, she's worrying about something that she shouldn't be worrying about. That worry is blinding her. It's keeping her from seeing the thing that will bring her comfort, which is Jesus who's standing right before her. So there she is, literally having a conversation with Jesus. And she thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't know who he is. And, you know, we see the heart of Mary here as well. She just says, you know what, tell me where he is and I'll get him. Now, Jesus, you know, probably a typical Jewish man, you know, a couple hundred pounds probably, you know, Mary thinking, you know, I am going to personally go and, you know, remove Jesus myself, which is probably not even likely that she could have done that. But just her heart saying, you know what, I'll get him. I'll do it. I want to get my Lord's body back. And so in the state of emotion and worry, there she is. And notice how Jesus, or what Jesus does for her in verse 16, he says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. So as Mary is in this emotional state of worry, Jesus just reveals himself to her. She thinks he's the gardener, and all of a sudden, when he speaks her name, he already spoke to her before. He asked her these two questions, and and that didn't help her see who he was. But when she heard him speak her name, All of a sudden, now she realizes who she's speaking to. She realizes this is Jesus. What a special thing that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I'm Jesus, but he actually kind of speaks to her. Here, here's who you are to me. I'm going to speak your name, and you have that relational connection with me of all those times that you've heard me say your name. And when you heard that, finally, Mary clicks and understands that she's speaking to Jesus. You know, I love this about Jesus. Even in our blindness, even in our wrong conclusions, even in our emotional states of worry, He comes, He meets us where we're at, and He reveals Himself to us. Jesus loves us so much that even when we're not looking for Him, He reminds us that He's still there with us. And as Jesus reveals Himself to Mary, it finally clicks. His body wasn't stolen. He has been risen from the dead. Jesus is alive, and Mary does what I'm sure most of us would have done. She clings to him. Yeah, I mean, that three days of misery, thinking that Jesus was dead, and now thinking that Jesus' body was taken, and here he is standing before her alive, and she just grabs a hold of him and holds on to him. Such a wonderful thing when we're in difficult situations, and it finally clicks. Jesus is here with me. And that changes everything. I mean, Mary goes from the worst experience of her life to the greatest joy of her life in just that moment when she recognizes Jesus is here, Jesus is risen. All those assumptions, all that worry, all that stuff was wrong, and and here He is with me in this situation, and everything changes. And for you and I, the same truth is when we're in those difficult situations and it finally clicks, I'm not here on my own. I'm not fighting this battle myself. I'm not dealing with these things in my own strength or my own ability. Jesus is here with me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. And that truth should bring comfort and joy. 
So the third way we should and should not respond when faced with a difficult situation is don't worry. Instead, keep your focus on Jesus and remember He is always with you to help you through your situation. You know, one of the most important things to understand and remember as you and I face difficulty, we're in a year full of difficulty. You know, this is something we need to keep at the forefront of our mind that we're not alone. You don't have to get through this on your own. You know, so much of what's hitting us in this year, this is overwhelming. You know, there's all these different things happening. And sometimes we just start worrying and panicking and thinking, you know, how am I going to get through this and realize, well, I'm going to get through this because Jesus is going to be there with me. I'm going to get through this because he's going to be there to help me get through it. Jesus is with you. His spirit indwells you. And that's what's going to empower you to move forward. But you know what? When you lose sight of the fact that this wonderful news of Jesus being with you, it causes you to respond to your difficult situation in the wrong way. You lose sight that Jesus is always with you no matter how bad things get. It's definitely going to impact the way in which you respond, it's going to impact it in a negative way. Well, after Mary finally realizes that Jesus is with her and clings to him, Jesus has uh, uh, something that he wants Mary to do, which is the exact opposite of what she did before. Notice what he tells her in verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Notice that now that Mary knows the truth, that Jesus is risen from the dead, not the lie, that his body has been stolen, all of a sudden now that she has this knowledge of the truth, Jesus says, I need you to do something for me, Mary. I want you to go to my brethren, to the disciples, and I want you to give them a very important message. Tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary, this message that I want you to declare, I don't want you just to tell them that you've seen me, that I'm risen from the dead. Both of those things would be important, but I also want you to let them know that I am ascending back to my Father in heaven. Now, something interesting to note is that the first person Jesus reveals himself to after he rises from the dead is Mary. He sends Mary out also as the first eyewitness to his resurrection. Now, the interesting thing of why this is something important to note is in that culture at that time, in a court of law, a woman's testimony was not accepted. You know, I mean, it was, it's not a good thing, but the reality was that's just the way it was back then. And so if a woman came as an eyewitness, it wouldn't be accepted. A woman's testimony wasn't listened to. It wasn't valued. And so it's interesting that Jesus, the first person that he speaks and reveals himself to after he rose, the first person he sends out as an eyewitness is a woman. See, Jesus valued women. Jesus valued her testimony. And this also brings credence to the fact that the message and the story of the Gospels and the resurrection is true. Because if someone just made this up, you know, all right, I'm going to make up a story that I want people to believe. Guess what? The first eyewitness isn't going to be a woman at that time because they realized no one would have believed a woman. No one would have accepted a woman's testimony. So if I'm going to make up this story, the first person I'm going to have is a man and not just any man. It's going to be some significant man of importance and power that people would have believed. And so this was a made up story. Mary Magdalene would not have been the woman that first saw Jesus and was first sent out 
by Jesus, but since this is true, we see what actually transpired with this. It's another great evidence for the historic truth of the resurrection account. So Mary has now seen that she jumped to the wrong conclusion. She now realizes, hey, Jesus' body wasn't stolen. He rose from the dead. And now I have a command by Jesus to go and speak to the disciples and tell them the message Jesus has given. I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Let's see how Mary responds to both of these truths, that Jesus is risen and the message that he gives her to share. Verse 18 says this, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So Mary's obedient. She goes to the disciples. She shares the message that Jesus has given her to share. But I think something important to note here is that Mary, or now that Mary has met with Jesus, she's able to share encouragement with the disciples. But before Mary met with Jesus, she shared discouragement with the disciples. The last thing that she told the disciples is somebody stole the body of Jesus, which would have been a very discouraging message. But now that she has personally met with Jesus, she has something encouraging to share with the disciples. This wonderful message. Jesus is risen and he's ascending back to the Father. How you and I respond to difficult situations and what we share with others in those difficult situations has a lot to do with whether or not we've met with Jesus. You know, I personally found when I make time to meet with Jesus, when I make time to spend uh, investing in studying His Word and in prayer and just giving that time to be uh, given to Him and I, it brings me encouragement as I face difficult situations, but it also gives me the ability to encourage others. You see, if I'm super discouraged, I don't have any encouragement to give you. If I haven't met with Jesus and allowed him to encourage me through that time of prayer and being in his word and just having him speak to me, you know, I don't have anything encouraging to offer. But once I take that time to meet with Jesus, not only am I encouraged by Jesus, but now I have something to encourage others with as well. And this is so important as we go through difficult circumstances because the reality is the majority of us go through similar things. And a lot of these things that we're facing right now, we're facing, you know, as a group where we're all dealing with similar stuff. And so, you know, I can be an encouragement in two different ways. I can just be an encouragement in the way in which I respond to the difficulties that I'm facing. As you look at my life, if you see that my response is a godly response, one that brings encouragement to you to do the same thing, as I have peace, as I have joy, as I demonstrate love to others, and you look and you see that, it's like, man, that's an encouragement to see someone responding the right way in the midst of all of this. And I want to emulate that kind of response. But there's also encouragement if I just encourage you with words of encouragement. You know, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult with all that you're going through. And let me just encourage you with these things, these truths of the word that are going to help you as you go through this difficult time. But you know, both of those are predicated on the reality that I have spent time with Jesus. Because if I haven't, I won't be encouraged and neither will I, neither will I be much of an encouragement to you. So the fourth way we should and shouldn't respond when we face a difficult situation is spend time with Jesus so you can be personally encouraged and encourage others in difficult situations. 
know, this is one of the wonderful things about being the body of Christ. You know, we're not in this alone. As we already mentioned, we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, but you know, we also have one another. We don't have to fight the battle. We don't have to go through difficulty on our own. We can be there for one another, and God wants us to be there for one another, meeting each other's needs, bearing each other's burdens, loving on each other, helping each other, and encouraging one another as we deal with this. But if we want to be those encouragers, which I hope we all do, recognize I have to spend time with Jesus before I will be an encourager to anybody. If I continually neglect time with Jesus, then it hurts all other relationships I have. As I spend time with Jesus, it blesses my relationships. It helps me to be the godly man or, or woman for you if you are a lady that God wants you to be, and it helps us to do what he's called us to do and encourage those he wants us to encourage. So Jesus has met with and revealed himself to Mary, and now he's going to meet with and reveal himself to those he sent Mary to give that message to the disciples. Let's see how that happens in verses 19 to 23. In the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So now we kind of change scenes from the tomb to the upper room. And there in the upper room, we have Jesus' disciples. And notice that John gives us some important information about this room. First of all, the doors are shut. And the implication is shut and locked, because why are they there? We're told they're there for fear of the Jews. And this is not an unfounded fear. I mean, the person that they followed for the last three years has just been murdered in the most grotesque, horrible way by the religious leaders, and they have fear that they're going to be next. You know, these religious leaders are going to come for them. And so they're in this room. This room is there uh, kind of locked and hiding for fear of the religious leaders. And notice what Jesus does for the disciples as they're in this fearful state. We just saw what he did for Mary in that emotional state, and now he's going to meet the disciples in their fearful state. We're told that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, interestingly here, you know, John brings up this reality of Jesus just kind of appears. Like, he doesn't knock on the door. They don't open it up to him. You know, they're hiding in this room, and all of a sudden, Jesus is just in the midst of them and says, peace be with you. The idea is that the room was secure when suddenly Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, we're not told how Jesus entered the room, but the way in which John describes it is just kind of, it was just a miraculous thing. He just appears there, and, you know, they're kind of blown away by this, and, and Jesus right away to fearful men, gives them the message that they need to hear. Peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side so they can know this is truly him. He has been risen from the dead. And when they're told, then the disciples were glad, probably an understatement, when they saw the Lord. What was the worst time in their life has now become the greatest moment. 
There is Jesus risen from the dead, standing before them. And when they thought all hope was lost three days earlier, all that I did for the last three years was useless. Jesus is dead and gone, and there's nothing he can do for me anymore. And now all of a sudden, everything's changed. He's risen. He's here. He's with us again. They go from sadness to gladness, from fear to peace. And once again, we see Jesus meeting people where they're at and giving them what they need. Mary was in a different place, and Jesus meets her where she's at and gives her what she needs. The disciples are in another place with a different struggle of fear, and Jesus meets them where they are at and gives them what they need as well. And then after Jesus calms them and their fear, he does something that's pretty amazing because Jesus knows why they're afraid. They're afraid of the religious leaders. They're hiding in a room so that the religious leaders don't come and find them. And notice now that Jesus has come and try to help with their fears. He does something that would have made them really fearful. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Hey guys, I know you're hiding here in this room, but guess what? It's time to get out. Time to leave this room as the Father has sent me to this earth to reach people for Him. I, in the same way, am sending you out to this earth to reach people for Him. And this would have been you know, a pretty significant mission before Jesus died on the cross. But now it's like, man, I understand who we're up against, Jesus. I just saw what they did to you. You want us to go out and reach these people? You want us to go into this world with people who despise and hate and murdered you on a cross? This is the, the mission that Jesus is giving to his disciples. It's the same mission that he gives us, as we call the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But notice here, Jesus understands something. Before they are capable of fulfilling this mission, they're fearful men hiding in a room. Jesus knows before they can get out boldly to reach a world with the gospel, to reach a world with what Jesus has done for them, they need something very important. And notice here, we see Jesus gives to them. He breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them what the focus of their mission is going to be. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Well, that's kind of generic and general. Well, what are you talking about? Well, here's what I'm going to specifically tell you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What Jesus is communicating here is he's giving the disciples the authority to announce forgiveness and to warn of guilt and judgment from sin. And we see a great example of this day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the very first sermon, gives the very first gospel message, and this is exactly what transpires within that sermon and that gospel message. He warns people that they are guilty sinners, and he announces that there is forgiveness, and if you believe in Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross for your sins. Now, Jesus knew this was an impossible mission unless the disciples had power beyond themselves. And that's why right after he shared, right before he shares it, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is important because he does something very similar in Acts chapter 1. 
After giving the disciples the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he says, before you go, wait. Well, wait for us. What? You know, I mean, we've had this wonderful you know, uh, commission from you. You've got to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you try to go without it, you're not going to be able to fulfill this commission. Acts 1.8 tells us this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. You see, the reason the disciples were able to go from being fearful to being bold, the reason Peter went from denying Jesus three times to the very first person to declare the gospel message, the reason the disciples went from hiding in a room to going into all the world to preach the gospel is because of the power of the Holy Spirit that indwelt them. The only way the disciples could fulfill the mission that Jesus gave them to reach the world with the gospel is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power, they would have been complete failures. They did not have in themselves nearly enough to accomplish such a great task. Now, this mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, it brought a lot of persecution. It brought a lot of difficult situations for the disciples. If you read through the book of Acts, you know, there was a lot of wonderful miracles. There was people getting saved, but you know what? There was a lot of people who rejected the message, and they rejected it in a very violent way. One of the main things that got them through that persecution, got them through that difficult situation, was relying upon the strength and the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. We see over and over again, not just in the upper room that first time on the day of Pentecost, but time and time again, as Peter and John are beaten and they come back again and they meet, and what? The Holy Spirit gives them boldness, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them miraculously to do signs and wonders, and and constantly the Holy Spirit is giving them what they need in order to accomplish what He's called them to do. So the fifth way we should and shouldn't respond when we face a difficult situation is rely upon the strength, wisdom, and power of the Holy Spirit, not on yourselves. And one of the most important lessons for us to learn, and for some of us, like myself, it can be a harder lesson to learn than maybe others, is in yourself, you don't have what it takes. In yourself, you don't have enough strength, you don't have enough wisdom, you don't have enough power, you don't have enough talent, you don't have enough whatever in and of yourself to accomplish what God has called you to do in any area, whether it be in a marriage as a husband or a wife or as a parent or as an employee or employer or just a godly person or to love your enemy. I mean, none of those things are possible in and of ourselves in and of our own ability, in and of our own wisdom and love and strength and power. The only way that we can accomplish these things is to depend completely on the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ. The good news is God says, I have this amazing commission for you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yeah, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of people who don't like it. There'll be persecution, but you know what? I am giving you my spirit to empower you to accomplish the work that I've given you to complete. And this is something we just have to understand. Hey, I can't do it in my own, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through the power of his spirits, I can do anything that he gives me to do. 
Now, when Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, there was one who wasn't there, Thomas. And now we're going to see how Thomas responds when the other disciples tell Thomas of this amazing experience they just had with Jesus. And it's going to be our last response that we're going to be looking at to a difficult situation. Let's see how Thomas responds in verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So as Jesus comes and he reveals himself to the disciples, peace be with you. I send you out this wonderful time that they have. Thomas isn't there. We're not given the reason why Thomas isn't there. And so we don't need to try to read into you know, what possibility or what thing kept him from being with the other guys in the upper room. He's just not there. So he misses out on one of the most glorious experiences of all, seeing the risen Lord. But you know what? His brothers who love him, they come just like you would. You'd go to the people you love. If you experienced seeing Jesus risen from the dead, they come to Thomas all excited. They tell Thomas what happened, what they just saw. Jesus is alive. We were here. He was here with us in the upper room. We saw him. Notice how Thomas responds. Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is basically saying, I don't believe you guys. You're telling me Jesus is risen. Well, I don't believe it. There's only one way I would believe it. He has to stand in front of me. I have to be able to take my finger, put it into the hole in his hand, and put it in the hole in his side. That's, that's the only way that I will come to a belief that Jesus is truly risen from the dead. This is interesting. Thomas refuses to believe the eyewitness testimony of men that he knew very well. Spent three years with him. Men that he loved. Men that he should have trusted. And he comes to really an extreme demand for evidence. Evidence not only of sight, but also of touch. I have to see Jesus in front of me, and I'm going to have to stick my finger in his hand and in his side. And if I don't have that, it's not enough evidence for me to believe. Now, there was plenty of good evidence to lead Thomas to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, but he chose to reject that evidence and not believe. And here's a sad thing. In verse 26, we're told eight days go by before Jesus reveals himself to Thomas and the rest of the disciples. So here is Thomas. He could have received the evidence he could have believed the disciples. He could have just been filled with joy, exuberant. Jesus is alive, but he rejects it. He chooses unbelief. And so eight days go by. And for Thomas, he has to have eight days where he is robbed because of unbelief. Eight days he could have been rejoicing. Eight days he could have been celebrating with the disciples, but eight days Thomas is still in this place of distraught. He's just in that place of sadness because of unbelief. And just like all the other responses that we've seen, this is a good warning for us. You know, unbelief robs us of so much. 
And this is something, I don't care you know, where you're at in your Christian life, I know that you can look back and see times where you just didn't have belief. I'm not saying that you didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you know, did you truly believe that Jesus was there with you? Did you truly believe all that the Word of God teaches and tells you about things? I know there have been plenty of times in my life where I've had unbelief, where I didn't trust what God told me, where I didn't believe that He would do what He said He would do, And you know what? That just robs you of so much. I think it's interesting. We saw last week, Peter and John were robbed of joy, we're told, because they didn't know the Scriptures. They didn't know the Scriptures said that Jesus would rise from the dead. And because they were ignorant to the Scriptures, it robbed them of joy. But here's the other side of the coin. Even if you know the Scriptures, you still actually have to believe them. And so Peter and John could have still known those Old Testament scriptures and they could have still chose to not believe them and they would have been in the same state. So yeah, you got to know the word of God, but it's got to go a step beyond that. I actually have to believe what it says. I have to allow it to impact my life and say, you know what? I trust this. I believe this. I'm going to take the commands of God for what they are and I'm going to believe them and put them into practice. I'm going to believe the warnings that God's Word tells me, and I'm going to avoid those things that it tells me to avoid. I'm going to trust the promises of the Word of God. I'm going to believe in them as I go through these situations and these issues, and maybe it doesn't seem like these promises are there or going to be fulfilled, but yet I trust that God's Word is true. You know, the way we show we believe is by doing what the Word of God says. We often say it, oh, I believe, I believe. Well, yeah, prove it. You know, that's what the book of James is all about. You know, faith without works is dead. Like, you're going to see belief in your actions. If you just say stuff and your actions speak something very differently, it shows, I don't really have belief in this. I don't really have faith in this. But when I'm acting upon it, that's what really demonstrates, yeah, I actually believe this book that I claim is inspired, that I claim is from God to me, that I claim is important for different areas of my life. I might believe it for certain things, but then maybe in my marriage, God's challenging me in something, or, or with a coworker, or with someone who hates me, and I don't like this love your enemy thing, and so I believe other portions, but not this one. You know, I don't want to actually act upon that one for myself right now. And it shows, if I'm not willing to act upon it, I don't really... Believe it the way that I should. So for eight days, Thomas stays in this place of unbelief, and it robs him of so many wonderful things that he could have experienced if he didn't choose that unbelief. But notice, just as Jesus has done for Mary, as he's done for the other disciples, how Jesus responds to Thomas and this extreme desire for evidence in order for him to believe Jesus is risen. Verse 26 through 29. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So eight days have gone by. Now the disciples, including Thomas, are in that room. The doors are shut. 
And once again, Jesus just appears in their midst, and he focuses specifically on Thomas. Comes to Thomas, and right away, notice what he says to Thomas. Hey, Thomas, here, reach your finger. Look at my hand. You want to put your finger in my hand? Here's the wound on my side. You want to put your finger in my side? Jesus knew exactly what Thomas claimed. Unless I see him and unless I stick my finger in his wounds, I won't believe. And so Jesus says, here I am. Here are my wounds. Give me your finger. If this is what it takes, Thomas, then this is what it's going to be. And Jesus isn't rebuking him. He's meeting him where he's at. And I love this about Jesus. He met Mary in this emotional state because of her wrong conclusions and revealed himself to her. He met the disciples in their fear. Peace be to you. I got a wonderful calling for you. And he meets Thomas here where he's at, not willing to believe, not willing to accept the evidence he should. And Jesus is like, fine, you need more evidence. Here it is. Here I am. Here are my wounds. Go ahead and touch them. If this is what it takes for you, Thomas. Jesus is very generous. Very merciful to Thomas and his unbelief. But understand, he's not praising Thomas's unbelief. He wants to move Thomas from this doubt, from this unbelief, to a place of faith. And so Jesus gives Thomas all he needs to go from unbelief to belief. And that's exactly what happens. Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. This immediate transition from declared unbelief eight days before to a radical belief, and he dresses Jesus with titles of deity, both Lord and God, were these titles of deity recognizing, I see who you truly are, Jesus. I believe that you are God. But notice what Tom, uh, Jesus says to Thomas right after Thomas says this. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Thomas was only willing to believe if he personally saw Jesus, was able to touch Jesus, and Jesus say, hey, you're only believing because of this overwhelming evidence of me in your presence with my wounds. But you know what? Blessed are those who, when they don't see me, still believe. Which includes all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. We haven't got the, the privilege and blessing of Jesus standing before us with his wounds there and us touching it and be like, all right, I believe in him now. But Jesus is saying that there's a blessing to those who are willing to accept, which is an overwhelming amount of evidence, that Jesus is truly God, truly died on the cross, rose from the dead, that we will accept that without having to see him personally appear to us in order for that to happen. You know, one of the most damaging things to us when we face difficult situations is unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus specifically, unbelief in the Word of God, And one of the biggest blessings to us in a difficult situation is when we do believe in Jesus and we do believe in all the things the Word of God tells us. So the sixth way we should and shouldn't respond when we face a difficult situation is don't let unbelief rob you. Instead, believe in Jesus and all that is in the Word of God. One of the most important things we can do if you want to properly respond if you want to have a godly response to the difficult situation that you face, be confident. Have a confident belief in Jesus and the Word of God. Here's something I'm sure you've experienced if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. The enemy is constantly trying to undermine your beliefs. Undermine your belief in Jesus. Undermine your belief in the Word of God. 
know, that's one of his great tactics because he knows if I can undermine your belief in Jesus, you're not going to trust what he says. If I can undermine your belief in the word of God, you're not going to do what it says. And sadly, he's been very effective in many Christians. And it might not be that he's undermined your belief in the Bible in its entirety. Like, I don't believe any of it. He might just start with, well, don't believe that. Oh, it says that's the sin. Eh, no, no, just believe what the culture says about that one. That one's fine. You can go ahead and continue in that. Oh, well, it says this about that. Well, yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. Don't believe that. And sometimes we just kind of little bits and pieces. He starts to convince us, yeah, that's not really for this day and age. Yeah, that, that's not really for us. And that's not really true. And all of a sudden he starts undermining the word, undermining Jesus himself. And it just brings us to a place where we start not trusting we start not doing, and that leads us to responding to difficult situations in a very poor way. Now, the faith of Thomas is really kind of the climax of the Gospel of John. You see, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we see Jesus conquering so many things. He conquers sickness. He conquered evil men. He conquered death. He conquered sin and sorrow. But now it kind of ends with Jesus conquering the unbelief of Thomas. And one of the main reasons that John wrote this gospel was to conquer the unbelief of his readers. You know, that's his biggest purpose. I'm writing this gospel because I want those who are reading who do not believe in Jesus to be able to overcome that unbelief and go from a place of unbelief to belief. And that's how he ends this chapter telling us why he wrote this book what the main reason was, why he includes what he includes, why he puts what he puts in there. Notice what he tells in verse 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, John says, hey, Jesus did so much. I mean, there's, you know, we would have volume after volume after volume of the Gospel of John if I were to include everything. So I just specifically chose certain things, certain signs, certain miracles, certain things that Jesus did for one ultimate purpose. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the main reason John wrote. I want people to read this and go from an unbelieving state to a believing state in Jesus, to go from eternity separated from Jesus in hell to eternal life with Jesus in heaven. I want Jesus to bring life to those who go from unbelief to belief. You know what? The only way that you and I, because we put our faith in Jesus, could have life is because of His death. He had to die, he had to take our sin, he had to take the judgment our sin deserves in order for us to have life, in order for us to have eternal life with him in heaven. And so as we look at this final challenge here with Thomas and his belief, and John reminding us this is really the heart of this whole gospel, is that people would come to a belief in Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross. We're going to conclude this morning taking some time to remember Jesus' sacrifice. We're going to do that by taking communion together. But something I want you to note as we just kind of look back to the cross, we do this every month. 
I really want you to remember this. The cross was the most difficult situation any person could ever face. As we've been looking at how the disciples dealt with and responded to the difficult situations they faced, none of them had anything close to what Jesus had to deal with in dying on the cross and taking the sin of the world and taking the judgment of Almighty God on Himself. And you know what? He responded to it perfectly. So as we look at the cross, and as we've been looking at how you and I should be responding to difficult circumstances that we face, let that be a glorious example of how you and I should respond, how God wants us to respond to difficulty. Let it encourage you to respond in the right way. Remember what we've been looking at the last two weeks. Don't make assumptions. And jump to conclusions instead. Investigate, get all the facts, and listen to those involved. Study God's Word and respond to your situation in light of what God's Word tells you. Don't worry. Instead, keep your focus on Jesus. Remember, He's always with you to help you through all that you go through. Spend time with Jesus so you can be personally encouraged and also encourage others who are going through difficult situations. Rely upon the strength, wisdom, and power of the Holy Spirit, not on yourself. Don't let unbelief rob you. Instead, believe in Jesus and all that is in the Word of God. So we're going to have the worship team come on up, and they're going to lead us in a song of worship. And you know, as they do that, I just want you to take this time to prepare yourself for communion, to take this time. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, I want to encourage you. This is a great time just to confess it before the Lord, before you take this time to look to what He's done on the cross for you, to remember His sacrifice for you, Hey, confess those sins, ask for forgiveness of those sins, prepare yourself for what He's done for you. And if you're watching online, I encourage you to go ahead and get communion elements together right now so you can partake with us. And uh, if you haven't uh, grabbed the little cup uh, that has both the juice and uh, bread in it, uh, you can just raise your hand right now and we'll pass one out to you uh, to make sure you can partake of it with us. And so let's just take this time to worship the Lord and prepare ourselves for communion. Hold on to those things uh, and I'll come back up and we'll partake of that together. <laughs>